Welcome back to our study on the kingdom of God. And this evening, we are embarking on a discussion of uh, the kingdom of heaven and our citizenship in it and how that interacts with uh, the subject of economics. So as we think about living here in the world, in the kingdoms of the world, or in the common kingdom, as we have been calling it, uh, that governs all men, uh, how do we interact uh, with the world around us, with other humans who may or may not be Christians, uh, in terms of economics. And so uh, we began this discussion last week. We looked at the arts and the sciences and discussed how uh, we were to interact with the arts and the sciences. And so uh, one of the things we did was define this idea of culture. What is culture? And so we defined culture as all the ways of life, including knowledge, so there's our pursuit of the sciences, art, beliefs, customs, morals, and institutions that form human society. So institutions that form human society, that's kind of a broad uh, category, but uh, one of my assertions this evening will be that um, economies, whether they're national or local or whatever, economies in this world are institutions of human society. It's how humans live together in society uh, and trade goods and services back and forth. And uh, I'm going to assert that these are authorized under the terms of the Noahic Covenant uh, and that there are uh, some principles that we can draw out of the Noahic Covenant regarding how those economies ought to work and then some principles about how we as Christians ought to engage in them. So let's begin by looking at Genesis chapter 9 again and the covenant that God makes here with Noah as he comes off the ark. So the flood has happened. God has wiped out all of sinful humanity and preserved alive Noah and his family and all the animals that were on the ark with them. Uh, And so I'll begin reading uh, in chapter 8, verse 20, and we will read uh, down through chapter 9, verse 7. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man." And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Okay, so this is the the heart of the Noahic covenant here that God makes with Noah. And there's a couple of things that we can see in regards to this. 
The first is that uh, if you'll remember from Genesis 1 and 2, when God created man originally, he gave this command or this mandate to Noah, or to Adam, I'm sorry, to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. And that is repeated here uh, in the covenant with Noah in chapter 9, verse 1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then again in, chapter, in verse 7, as for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. So that same uh, commandment that was given to Adam is now given to Noah. And this is uh, the institution of the family, right? It's a creation institution. It was given to all men in common. It's reiterated here in the Noahic covenant to all men in common. Family, marriage, family, child rearing is not something specific and limited to believers only. This is for all humanity, whether they are Christians or not. Uh, So that command was originally given to Adam. Now it is uh, given again to Noah in the wake of the flood. The second thing that we can see here is that, uh, and this will be a discussion that we get into next week, but in verses 5 and 6, we can see the establishment or the authorization of human government. Right, that uh, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Uh, So this is the authorization of God in the Noahic Covenant for human government. We've discussed this a little bit in the past for the purposes of pursuing retributive justice and maintaining peace in society. That will be our topic for next week. But in the midst of that, uh, between the command in verse 1 to be fruitful and multiply and the establishment or authorization of government in verses 5 and 6, Uh, we have God changing a little bit the mandate that was originally given to Adam. Adam was told to take dominion over the earth and to tend and keep the garden. But here it says that God is going to put the fear and the dread of man in the animals so that they would fear us, but that they are all given into our hands. And in verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herb. So, All of creation, the animals and the plants specifically, have been given to man as resources for him to make use of as he multiplies and spreads throughout the earth. So I would argue that this is the establishment of uh, economic institutions, of the idea that uh, mankind is authorized to make use of natural resources in the creation uh, in order to support uh, and enable the fulfilling of the first command to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth, right? As, as that happens, mankind spreading out over the face of the earth is going to need food and shelter in order for society to be established. Uh, and so as we multiply and fill the earth, we have to uh, make use of these resources in some way. So this is uh, some authorization for mankind to do that. And so how does that get worked out? Well, a couple of things that we ought to note about it. First of all, if we look back at chapter 8, verse 22, uh, the Noahic covenant it is specifically in place while the earth remains. Uh, we've discussed this a little bit previously when we looked at uh, contrasts between uh, the Noahic covenant or the common kingdom that's governed by it versus the kingdom of heaven. And one of the differences or the contrasts we noted is that the kingdom of heaven is everlasting. It's enduring, it's eternal, whereas the kingdoms of this earth are temporary. They are provisional. The Noahic covenant that governs the common kingdom of this world is temporary. It will last as long as the earth remains until Christ returns 
and judgment happens and the new heavens and the new earth are established. And so what this means is, as we think about these three types of institutions, the family, economic institutions, and government, is that these three things, as they exist under the Noahic Covenant, are temporary. They're provisional. They will cease to exist in their current form in the realized eschatological kingdom. All three things still remain in the kingdom, but they're changed. Just like all of creation is changed and made new, these are changed and made new as well. And we begin to see that in the life of the church, right? The family of God. We think the church is a family. Uh, You become a Christian, you're adopted by God. That's one of the doctrines in our confession of faith. You're now a son or a daughter of God. You're part of his family. And so family in the kingdom of God changes uh, in the eschatological kingdom. We know there will be no marriage. There will be no giving in marriage. There will be no children born in uh, the, the kingdom. So family changes in the kingdom. Government in the kingdom will change. Again, we'll get into this next week, but think about uh, the passage in Isaiah that we often read around Christmas time that talks about the government being upon his shoulders and of his authority and a government and rule there would be no end, right? Christ's kingdom uh, will last forever. His reign and rule will last forever. And particularly, his government is different than the governments of this world because the government is on his shoulders, whereas the governments of this world tend to be on the backs or on the shoulders of the governed. Uh, So the government of the kingdom is entirely different than how it is in this world. Well, the economy of the kingdom is different as well. And so we're going to look at that a little bit tonight, what the economy of the kingdom of heaven looks like versus the economies of this world. But all three of those things are different in the eschatological kingdom, but they're breaking into this world now with the, the, the coming of the kingdom in seed form in the church. So uh, one book that I've been making use of this week and next week uh, is a book called Politics After Christendom by a man named David Van Drunen. Uh, and he says this, he says, the eschatological economic dynamic of the kingdom of heaven is inaccessible to the Noahic covenant and the political communities it governs. That covenant, this is the Noahic covenant, promises and imparts no redemptive grace or eschatological bounty. So his point is the Noahic covenant doesn't promise salvation. It doesn't give us redemptive grace the way the new covenant does uh, in the kingdom of heaven. And it doesn't contain within it uh, the, the blessed abundance that we find promised to us in the coming kingdom. In fact, it really is an economy of uh, labor and scarcity, as we'll see. So we're going to go over seven uh, features of the Noahic economic life. Some of these we'll see directly from this passage here in Genesis. Some of them we're going to be looking at multiple passages in Proverbs. And some of them are just going to be arrived at by good and necessary consequence as we think through uh, how this would all work. So the first one is this, is that economies uh, under the Noahic covenant in the common kingdom, economies of men should, uh, and these are all shoulds, right? They're We know that the economies of men are full of sinful men, and so they're not going to work exactly as they should. But should they work as they should, they should encourage industriousness. 
right, economy, the type of economy that we would want to live under in the common kingdom should encourage industriousness. Man, we're told here in verse 6, is made in the image of God. We're made in the image of God. And if we think about creation, what did God do for six days? He worked. He created. He labored, right? So we're made in his image and we are made to work. Adam was given work to do in the garden even before the fall. And so our economies should take that into account. Man is made to work, to be industrious in the image of God. And so as we think about what that would look like, uh, we're going to look at multiple passages in the book of Proverbs tonight. And one of the reasons is the book of Proverbs has given us wisdom for how to live life, and much of it applies whether you're a Christian or not. These are just general principles that apply to life in the common kingdom. So in Proverbs chapter 10, it says in verses 4 and 5, Proverbs 10, 4 and 5, He who has a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a wise son. He who sleeps in harvest is a son who causes shame. So you can see uh, Proverbs is encouraging us to be diligent, industrious, to work hard, and and telling us that there is a reward for those who work hard. That is, uh, they will gain wealth, whereas the one who doesn't work hard, who has a slack hand or who is uh, lazy and sleeps through the harvest time, Uh, will be impoverished. He will not gain wealth. So uh, hard work is encouraged, and it brings the reward of wealth. Flip over a couple pages to chapter 12 of Proverbs, and there are some verses scattered through chapter 12. Uh, Verse 11, He who tills his land will be satisfied with bread, but he who follows frivolity is devoid of understanding. Verse 14, A man will be satisfied with good by the fruit of his mouth, and the recompense of a man's hands will be rendered to him. Verse 24, the hand of the diligent will rule, but the lazy man will be put to forced labor. And then verse 27, the lazy man does not roast what he took in hunting, but diligence is man's precious possession. So Proverbs is teaching us throughout, there are many other passages that we could look at, uh, that hard work and industry Uh, brings with it the reward of plenty. You have food to eat, you have a home to live in, uh, you have an inheritance to pass on not only to your children but to your children's children. And Proverbs makes it plain that wealth is a blessing that follows honest hard work. Okay, So that's the first thing. Our economies ought to encourage industriousness. Secondly, they ought to encourage technological development. And this is one of those good and necessary consequences as we think about mankind uh, multiplying on the face of the earth. How are we going to feed all these people? We have to develop some technology. We have to uh, develop our sciences, our investigative knowledge of God's creation, right? Which crops should we grow? Which livestock should we keep? How are we going to transport resources from one place to another? We're going to need technological innovation to do that. Uh, How are we going to work the land? Are we just going to continually dig it by hand forever, or are we going to invent a shovel? Are we going to invent a tractor? Right? Technological advancement uh, helps us fulfill the Noahic mandate uh, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And as we do that, how are we going to keep people healthy? We need to develop 
science and medicine in order to do that, and there are resources involved in all of that. So uh, our economies ought to encourage that sort of development rather than discourage it. Thirdly, our economies should be designed in such a way that they benefit all people. Uh, in other words, they should not exclude any given class of people. Now, obviously, an economy of a particular location is going to have some boundaries around it, right? We have a national economy in the United States, and we have trade with other countries. We have a global economy. Uh, but obviously, in some sense, we exclude people who are not American citizens from certain aspects of our economy, and that's normal. But we shouldn't exclude whole classes of people who do live within the boundaries of our nations just simply based on random things like the color of their skin or where they were born or you know, who their parents are, those sorts of things. We shouldn't exclude uh, people on these grounds. Proverbs chapter 22 tells us that even on economic grounds, uh, it tells us in Proverbs 22:2, the rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. In other words, God shows no partiality. It doesn't matter to him whether someone is born rich or born poor. Uh, they're, he made them both. Uh, so we should not show partiality in the way our economic system is designed. It should not be designed in such a way that it excludes certain people by default. Fourthly, our economies should be just. Now, obviously, um, and we can get into this more next week as we talk about government and law, um, you know, we could have laws that would uh, punish theft that sort of thing that would impact our economy. But our economy should be just in the way the transactions within the economy uh, are made, right? So Proverbs chapter 20, verse 10, diverse weights and diverse measures, are, they are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Or in verse 23, diverse weights are an abomination to the Lord and dishonest scales are not good. So our economies, the, the bartering, the buying, and the selling of goods and services should be just in the sense that the transactions should be honest. Now, everybody involved needs to feel like they're making a profit off of it, and that's fine, but you shouldn't be dishonest in your business transactions. So our economy should be set up in such a way uh, that it is just. Fifth, uh, our economies should encourage the stewardship of creation. Uh, they should encourage us to be good stewards of creation. So if we uh, go back to uh, the Noahic covenant there in Genesis 9, uh, in verse 12, it says, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. And in verse 17, And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So the Noahic Covenant actually governs more than just mankind. It governs all the animals as well. So they are part of uh, this covenant that is governing our common kingdom. And because of that, um, they are a part of whatever economic interactions we have. The animals and the plants have been given to man as resources in Genesis 9-3. And so we are to use those resources for food and for shelter and, and whatnot. But we are to do so in a way uh, that stewards these resources well and not uh, wastefully. 
So if we go back to Proverbs again to look for some of these principles, in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 10, it says, A righteous man regards the life of his animal, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. So a righteous man is going to, even as he's raising animals and using them for labor to till his fields with or using them for food, he's going to do so in such a way that has regard for life and isn't cruel uh, even to his livestock. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 27, the lazy man does not roast what he took in hunting, but diligence is man's precious possession. So we shouldn't be wasteful of the resources that God has provided, right? Christians and non-Christians alike have hunted down through the millennium to provide food for their families, but we shouldn't waste that resource. God has provided the animals on earth for our benefit, uh, not to be wasted because we're lazy. In chapter 24 of Proverbs, we read about, uh, in verse 27 of chapter 24, it says, Uh, Prepare your outside work, make it fit for yourself in the field, and afterward, build your house. And so here we're instructed, there's a certain way to go about things. Feed your family, provide shelter for them. And then in verse 30, it says, I went by the field of the lazy man, and by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding, and there it was, all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. When I saw it, I considered it well. I looked on it and received instruction." A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. So shall your poverty come like a prowler and your need like an armed man. Uh, So aside from uh, regarding the life of our animals and not being inhumane in the way we treat them and not being wasteful of the resources that God has given us, uh, we also should not uh, be lazy where we neglect the upkeep of our homes and our property and the other resources that God has entrusted uh, to us. Right? These resources are precious and valuable and should be used uh, as good stewards. Number six, our economies should encourage uh, cultural creativity. Last week we looked at the idea of the arts uh, and the sciences and we discussed the fact that man being made in the image of God is what we, what we got a term from uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. We are sub-creators, right? We create things because we're made in the image of God who is a creative God. And so uh, we make music and art and, and all these different cultural things that we make. Uh, and because we're made in God's image, and Genesis 9, the Noahic Covenant, specifically mentions that, whatever economic arrangements we should come up with should make room for uh, us to pursue these sorts of creative cultural activities. Noahic Covenant is primarily concerned with the material uh, aspects of family, economics, and government, but it should at least leave room, it shouldn't exclude the pursuit of the creative arts. And then finally, seventh, and again, this is something we're going to get into more next week, but I wanted to cover it a little bit tonight because it is important. And this is the idea that um, our economies, as they are set up, should be consistent with limited government. And next week we're going to discuss the idea of government as established under the Noahic Covenant, um, and I'm going to make the argument that Christians should encourage the idea of limited government. Uh, Expansive government, the more expansive the government gets, the more things it gets involved with, uh, the more it is going to encroach on other legitimate authorities that have been established by God, namely the family, businesses, and the church. 
the more the government gets outside the bounds of pursuing justice and peace, and the more it gets involved in our daily lives, the more there's going to be conflict within the society as different people have different religious values, different business endeavors, different thoughts about how to raise their families. So the more the government gets involved in that, the more conflict we have, the less peace we have in our society. You can see it happening today in America. Uh, and so our economic systems should be consistent with limited government. Government, by its very nature, cannot help but have a negative impact on our economy. It just it has to have a negative impact on our economy. The government, by its very existence, is going to redirect, redistribute, and consume the, the economic products of individual labor. Uh, it's going to do so. We see an example of this in the scriptures uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, where Israel is demanding a king. Uh, and so Samuel uh, tells the people uh, the words that God has given him regarding what this involves for them to establish a government. In First uh, Samuel chapter 8, beginning in verse 10, So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, This will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties, will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves and the Lord will not hear you in that day. So we can see right there uh, that God is telling us we establish a government. This is what's going to happen. They're going to raise your taxes. They're going to consume the products of your economic labor and endeavors. They can't help but operate in that way. So we'll get more into that next week. But for now, just our economies should encourage limited government rather than demanding an expansive government. So those are the seven principles of how economies ought to function under the Noahic covenant. But now we have to ask the question, well, how do Christians interact with these economies in the world? Should we? Uh, are, are we to withdraw into our Christian uh, enclaves and establish our own private economies, or should we be involved in the economies of the world? Well, I think it's clear uh, from the New Testament, the pages of the New Testament, that the New Testament church did not withdraw from the economies of the world. We see multiple Christians in the New Testament church who owned and operated their own businesses. The Apostle Paul being one of them who made tents. Uh, Lydia, a maker of purple dyes, uh, different people throughout the New Testament. Uh, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, who had their own business and traveled around the Roman Empire running their business. So Christians should own businesses and be engaged in the economic life of the society that they live in. But as they do so, they should keep in mind these ideas from the Noahic Covenant about how economies should work, and they should put these things into practice both in their own personal finances and insofar as they have influence in their society. But as we think about the different kinds of economies that exist in the world that we could be involved in, we 
actually are very, very blessed in the history of the world to live uh, with the sort of economy that we have or have had up to this point, even though there are changes taking place. But there are two primary forms of economic uh, interaction in the world, what we might call market economies. And I'm not talking strictly about free market capitalism. There are multiple types of market economies. But this is an economy where we have a voluntary exchange of goods and services where one person grows wheat and produces it and chooses to sell it and somebody else chooses to buy it and they agree on a price, it's all voluntary. The opposite of that is what we might call a command economy in which the production, the offering of products and the price at which those products are offered are based on government laws and regulations. Uh, so that is a command economy. If you think about those two ideas, the second one, a command economy, is not consistent with the principles of economies under the Noahic Covenant, whereas a market economy, a free market economy, is. It's not perfect. It's occupied and populated by sinful human beings who pursue greed and other things. But in, in most general ways, a market economy is consistent with those principles. So that happens to be the type of economy we live in thank the Lord, that we live in this sort of free economy. But how are we to interact in this economy? I want to give us uh, six uh, principles for how Christians should conduct themselves. The first one that we need to recognize is based on what we have already said about economies, particularly out of the book of Proverbs. Wealth is a blessing that follows industriousness, diligence, and hard work. It's a blessing from the Lord. And so as Christians engage economically in the world around us, we should keep in mind that money itself is not a problem. Money is not the problem. If we think about the saints throughout the scriptures that we know of in the Old Testament, Job, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, they were wealthy, fabulously wealthy, some of them. In the New Testament even, Luke, the physician, who wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts, had a, benet, a, a benefactor, Theophilus, a man who probably was supporting Luke's ministry to the Apostle Paul and his writing of those two books. We can look through the pages of the New Testament and see that Barnabas, Mark, Nicodemus, Lydia, Philemon, among others, were wealthy. They owned lands, businesses, homes large enough to host the church in. They were wealthy people. So money itself is not a problem for Christians. What is a problem is the love of money. Uh, throughout the New Testament, we see Christ interacting with the Pharisees, and it mentions more than once that the Pharisees loved money. And so in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, we see Paul writing uh, to Timothy, his uh, young protege, and he says, um, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So while money itself, wealth, could be considered a blessing from God for diligent hard work, if our love is fixed on that money. If our heart is fixed on that money, it becomes a snare to us, and the love of money becomes the root of all sorts of other evils, greed, pride, uh, various sorts of evils. 
So that's the first thing we ought to keep in mind. The second thing we ought to keep in mind is that the economy of the kingdom of which we are citizens, the economy of the kingdom of heaven, is distinct from the economies of this earth. It's different just as the families of the kingdom of heaven is different, just as the government of the kingdom of heaven is different. So the economy of the kingdom of heaven is different as well. I'll read a couple of passages here, one from the old and one from the new. In Joel chapter 3, as he's, the prophet is speaking about the coming day of the Lord, the day of judgment at the end of time, uh, and the establishment then of the kingdom. He says this in Joel 3.18, And it will come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drip with new wine, the hills shall flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Acacias. There's a, a certain abundance that is pictured for us in the coming kingdom. Uh, as we uh, think about the pictures of the kingdom that we are given in the book of Revelation, uh, the eschatological kingdom when it comes in its fullness, uh, the description that is given to us abounds with this idea of economic abundance. Even the streets are made of gold. Right? The city is made of gold, its walls of jasper, its foundations are adorned with all kinds of precious stones. Uh, and, and so he goes through and lists all these. The 12 gates are made of 12 pearls. It's metaphorical language, but you get the idea. There's, the description is there's just economic abundance in the kingdom. And as we think about the food necessary to feed mankind and humanity, as we've discussed uh, in our economic pursuits, Consider that in the kingdom, it says, in chapter 22 of Revelation, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The tree of life is there feeding us, and it is yielding its fruit willingly. But what do we have to do to get fruit now because of the fall? We have to labor for it by the sweat of our brow so that the economy of the kingdom is an economy of abundance, of royal abundance, whereas the economies of this world are economies of labor in order to scratch out economic benefit from the creation. The second thing that makes the economy of the kingdom uh, distinctly different from the economies of this world is that the economy of the kingdom uh, is known for its lavish generosity uh, in a way that is un uncommon uh, in the kingdoms of this world. Consider uh, the Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. Uh, as he's writing to the church in Corinth, and, and remember there's a famine in Judea, there's persecution in Judea, there are uh, Christian believers in Judea who are suffering, and so Paul's encouraging the churches that when he comes to visit them, he wants them to have a collection of money ready for him to take back to relieve the suffering of these saints in Judea. And listen to what he says to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. So he's telling the church in Corinth about the churches in Macedonia. That in a great trial of affliction and the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. So even though they were poor, they were liberal 
in their generosity. Uh, He says, For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely, willingly imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering of the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all diligence and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So the whole idea here is that the church in Macedonia was economically poor, and yet they gave lavishly in their generosity for the needs of others. We see in his letter to the church in Philippi uh, that Paul speaks of their generosity. In Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, uh, he writes and he says, For even in Thessalonica you... You sent aid once and again for my necessities, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the thing sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. So the idea is that the church in Philippi had been generous in supporting the Apostle Paul uh, beyond what he even needed, uh, and and so they were lavish in their generosity. Even in their poverty, the Christians were lavish in their generosity to one another. And so Van Drunen, in his book, he, he comments and he says that Christ grants the church a mysterious grace reflecting the new creation abundance. So the church is granted this grace by Christ that reflects the abundance of the coming kingdom, he says, so that they can engage in a kind of crazy defiance of earthly economic reality. The church can engage in a crazy defiance of earthly economic reality. We can give beyond what we're able, knowing and trusting that God will provide for our needs, that he will provide abundantly for our needs. So, The economy of the kingdom is distinct from the economies of this world because of its lavish generosity and that we can engage in that even now as believers trusting in the Lord. Thirdly, um, Christians should engage in economic activity of every sort with humility. Uh, with humility and thankfulness. In Proverbs chapter 22, verse 4, it says, By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. So we should engage uh, with humility uh, in our economic endeavors. Back in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy again, verse six, chapter 6, where Paul, we've already read part of this, where Paul was encouraging Timothy uh, about uh, the love of money being the root of evil. He also commands him in chapter 6, verse 17, saying, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. So 
the rich are not to become arrogant because of their wealth, but they are instead uh, to trust in God instead of their riches because God gives us these things to enjoy. He then says, let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. So the rich in this world are to be humble before God and in relation to their fellow man and to be generous and giving laying up for themselves treasures in heaven. You know, even uh, in the Old Testament, get back here, the the king Solomon, who wrote for us the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, noted that wealth was a gift from God and should be received with humility and thankfulness. He says in Ecclesiastes 5 verse 18, here is what I have seen. It is good and fitting that for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him, for it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. So we're to enjoy the fruits of our labor with thankfulness because it is a gift of God uh, that we would have the things that we need. So back to uh, the book of Proverbs again. In Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22, we're told the blessing of the Lord makes one rich and he adds no sorrow with it. You can get rich by other means. Proverbs talks about that, but it is attended with sorrow uh, if you're pursuing riches with greed and cruelty. But uh, the blessing of the Lord makes one rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. In Matthew chapter 6 in the the Sermon on the Mount, Christ talks about the fact that uh, we need not worry about what we would eat, what we would drink, what we would wear, because God knows what our needs are, and he will provide for them. And if we seek the kingdom, he will give us everything we need in this world. And that's why we can go engage economically with this kind of crazy defiance of earthly realities because we know the abundance uh, of the blessing of God. And then fourthly, we should steward our resources, which we've already seen anyway, that all people, we ought to steward the natural resources we're given, but we ought to do so, Christians ought to do so for the glory of God, right? For the benefit of others and for the glory of God. In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 25, it says, the generous soul will be made rich and he who waters will also be watered himself. So we've seen that already in the Uh, economy of the kingdom, that it is marked by a liberal generosity. And so God has promised that if we are generous as we steward the resources he has given us, that he will bless us for that. Well, as we think about the New Testament church and how it engaged economically, Acts 4 is one of the places that we might turn. At the end of chapter 4 of the book of Acts, uh, it's telling us about the life of the church here in the New Testament. And beginning in verse 32, it says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. So the church is together here in Jerusalem and Acts, and what it's saying is is that as they stewarded the resources God had given them, nobody was saying, this is mine. They were all saying, this is God's. This is God's. 
So I'll steward it however the Lord wants me to steward it. It says, And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things they were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who also was named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here Barnabas had some wealth. He had some land that he owned. He sold it. He brought it. He gave it to the apostles, the money, so that it could be used uh, for those who were in need. They were stewarding their resources, not possessing them. The things belong to God, not to me. And so they're stewarding them. But interestingly, if we keep reading into chapter 5, we come on the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And there's an interesting point that the apostle Peter makes here. It says, but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. So just as Barnabas, he had some land, he had a possession of some kind, he sold it. And he kept back part of the proceeds. His wife also, being aware of it, brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. So they sold some property, they got the money, they brought part of it and gave it to the church and kept part of it for themselves. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? You didn't, you didn't give the whole amount. You've lied. So... The, The problem is not that they didn't give the whole amount. The problem is that they lied about it. They said they were giving the whole amount when they really weren't. They wanted to be seen as more generous than they were really being. Then Peter says in verse 4, While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So even though all things belong to God and we steward them as his children, entrusted with his possessions, there's still, it does, that doesn't mean that the life of the church, that when we become Christians, we no longer have any concept of personal property. It obviously still exists, right? We are to steward individually the resources that God has given us. Ananias and Sapphira were free to make a determination of how much they were able to give how much God was leading them to give. The problem wasn't that they didn't give a certain amount. The problem was that they lied about what they were doing. Uh, So it doesn't erase the idea of personal property, uh, but it does encourage us that we are to steward these resources as God's resources entrusted to us rather than clinging to them uh, as being our own. And of course, uh, in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we see Jesus Uh, instructing us uh, in this same idea that our treasure, the things that we treasure, are not to be possessions in this world, uh, but those things which consist in the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So it's not whether or not we have money here on earth. We see that in 1 Timothy 6. That wasn't the issue. The question is, is our heart inordinately attached to that money? Or is it attached to Christ and using that money as a good steward? In chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus 
reminds us that no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or money. So we, we can't serve money. We have to serve God and put money to work in his service. So we can see here that this idea of laying up treasure in heaven versus placing our heart and our affection on treasures on earth reinforces, again, this idea that we've already seen that the economies of this world are transitory. They're, they're provisional. They will go away. Our treasure should be in the kingdom where it will last forever. So Christians can and should take part uh, in the enterprise of economic uh, engagement in our culture, but uh, we should do so with Christ as our king, with an awareness of what we're doing, of the provisional nature and aspects of the Noahic covenant, and with a willingness uh, to work towards the glory of God and the good of others as we pursue economic engagement with our neighbors. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer.